Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, as you can see from the uh, slide behind me, the topic this morning that we are going to be looking at is the world. Um, I'm sure you know that we've been going through this series, the spiritual warfare series, over the last uh, several weeks, and um, uh, with that, we have been looking these last few weeks on the three classic enemies of the soul um, in Christian theology, and that's um, the devil, the flesh, and the world. And so two weeks ago, Nathan uh, took us through um, some teaching on the devil. Uh, we saw how the devil is the enemy that's uh, beyond us. Then uh, last week, Brother Brendan uh, was covering the flesh. That's the enemy within us. And today, like I said, we are going to be looking at the enemy that is around us. That's the world. Um, so, yeah, just maybe before we go further, I'm just going to pray once again. Uh, Father in heaven, um, yeah, I just want to commit this time to you. Um, and ask that by your spirit you would teach us, Lord, as we um, look into your word, as we look at this topic of the world. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm thankful that as we look at this enemy, um, that we know that, Lord Jesus, you said in John 16 that uh, we can take heart because you have overcome the world. And uh, yeah, thank you that that's our the position that we come at this right now, and um, again, just asking that you would um, make this helpful, that this would be practical, and um, yeah, be exactly what each one of us need here this morning. So again, just committing it to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our plan this morning is to very simply answer these three questions. When we're considering the world, we want to ask, what is the world? Then we want to talk about, how does the world work? And then we want to consider, how can we then fight the world? Um, what is the world? So, first of all, you know, just like I'm sure you have experienced when you are looking up a word in a dictionary, there's often multiple meanings to one word. And that's the same thing with uh, the word used for world. Um, in, in the New Testament, the word is cosmos. Um, we get our word cosmos from that. Um, and, uh, and so even within the, the New Testament, the way that this word is used um, differs depending on the context. And so it's important that you are able to see uh, where it's used, how it's used to get a real good understanding of what this word is, what is the world. Um, now, um, like I said, it has, it has many meanings. It has kind of... Uh, meanings that are interesting, maybe that you might not uh, necessarily associate with the world right away, but uh, we're going to take a look at a few examples that I think will um, help us to build this understanding of what 
this is. What is the world? Um, we're actually going to start in the Old Testament. Um, there's a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and uh, that's um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And what's interesting is this word cosmos actually appears uh, throughout the Septuagint in the Old Testament. Um, and so this... Um, yeah, we're, we're going to take a look and see how some of the Old Testament writers used, or the word cosmos is used in the Old Testament. Um, just take a look at our first one here. So, Genesis 2, verse 1. You can turn there if you like, I have it up here too. Um, the verse says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Does anyone want to maybe try and guess where the word cosmos is in this verse? Okay, earth. Um, I brought some prizes for participation here, so... I think that was you, Alana. Okay, <laughs> um, <Kate>, so <laughs> Earth, um, yeah, when I, when I look at this verse, I would say, yeah, probably the word for cosmos is Earth. Okay, but it may surprise you that the word in this verse that's used for Cosmos, or that's translated from cosmos, is actually the host, and all the host of them. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Um, now, host here, it refers to, think of like an army, um, like an angelic army. It used... Um, it's used to talk about um, this big gathering. Uh, you can uh, think of it as a host of, of stars. Okay? Um, it seems like an odd use of cosmos, in, in my opinion. But when we, we think, um, especially how in the New Testament, it's often uh, translated as the world, well, then why would it be the host here, the host of them? Here it's meaning armies. Seems a little strange. We'll take a look at another example. This is from Isaiah 61, verse 10, and it reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a, a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So, does anyone want to guess where the word cosmos is in this verse? Courtney's 
cheating. She knows already. So, <laughs> um, yes. The word cosmos here is in, or is translated as jewels. Okay, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. So, again, we have hosts. We have jewels. Okay, how does that relate to the world? Um, seems a little bit odd. We'll look at one more here. This is also from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 3. Um, just for the sake of context here in Isaiah 3, judgment is coming to Israel. And uh, it's talking about what's going to happen to uh, the leaders and the prophets. And then it goes on to talk about the, the woman, the daughters of Zion. And um, it's, going to, it's talking about what's going to happen to them, what judgment is facing them. And again, well, I'll, I'll read the verse. It says, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness, and instead of a belt, a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. So again, where do we see cosmos? Beauty? Uh, not beauty. I'll maybe let someone else try to guess. Well set. Yeah. So, cosmos is translated here as well set hair. Okay. So, again, these seem like, like strange translations for the word cosmos, especially when we know that it's talking about the world. Okay, Genesis 2, 1, again, the hosts, or think armies. Isaiah 61, verse 10, jewels. And Isaiah 3, verse 24. But I think what connects these different words, what connects these translations, what's the, the common theme with these examples is um, there's order here. There's arrangement. There's something beautiful in its order. Um, when you think about jewels, they are these precious adornments that uh, someone might wear. They, they've been crafted in a way that is beautiful. It's, it's well-ordered. Um, when you think about well-set hair, it's, it's groomed, it's maintained, it's um, clean, it's orderly, it's beautiful. Um, you know, in, in Genesis 2.1, you know, what's, what's one of the, the defining characteristics of an army or, or a host? They, they're well-ordered, right? They, they march in unison. They are organized in battalions and brigades. They are ordered. And it's like an ordered machine. I think that this background of what we come to uh, cosmos in the New Testament helps us to really see what this is talking about. Um, it's, again, in the New Testament, mostly translated as the world. And um, we can see that it's this idea that it's well-ordered. It's a system 
that is structured. There's, um, it's been measured. Um, when, you, when you read Genesis 1, you see the point is that God is, um, you know, he's ordering what he makes. As you go through the creation account, you can see there's order in what God is doing. He makes it beautiful. You know, how many times he says, and it was good. And so, that's where this Old Testament term comes from, cosmos, in the Septuagint. That stands for things that are beautiful and, and well-made. And that's where it comes to stand in the New Testament as the world. But, you can take a look at Ephesians 2. Um, Ephesians 2, verse uh, 1 to 3. Uh, maybe if uh, I could get someone just to read that for us. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Thank you. Um, interesting to note, you can actually see all the three enemies that we have been looking at now um, in this passage, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, but in verse 2, it talks about how the course of this world. Here it, it means order. It means arrangement or organization or pattern. It's, it's referring to man-made society, the, the way that it's, it's put together with the standards and the institutions, um, the structures in place, the beliefs, the traditions. Um, it's this idea that the world has been assembled in such a way that it supports the desires, thoughts, and feelings of the flesh and not of God. In other words, it's an environment where sin is normal. It's the norm. And we have to remember that not only is the world our enemy, but it's said, in which you once walked in which you once walked. We were once a part of it. And this is important to understand. It's, it's what we're born into. Uh, you know, someone said that a fish doesn't know it's wet until you, you take it out of the water. It's, it's what we're born in. When, when you are a, apart from Christ, separated from Christ, it's, it's not just that you have these bad habits or you... you do these things that are, are wrong, yes, but it's because you're part of a world, you're part of a system that is in every way opposed to God at every turn. And yes, the world is our enemy, but we need to understand that the, the world is what we were born into. The world is... Um, very familiar to each of us um, because we used to be just like it. But, but praise God 
Praise God. Um, you know, you continue reading in Ephesians 2. We see that he is rich in mercy. And because of the great love he had for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive. You know, Romans 5.10 reminds us that God, uh, even when, when we were his enemies, reconciled us. Um, loved us when we were still his enemies. And when we were in opposition to him, in opposition to his kingdom, that's when he loved us. And, and so when it's talking about the world that, that we used to be a part of, it's talking about the world as the kingdom of, of Satan, the kingdom of the devil, this, this realm that is fallen, that is cursed, because of sin, under the bondage of, of sin. Um, it's these well-ordered systems, these institutions that are made up of, of humans that are set up, again, to oppose God. So this is what it means in, in James 4 um, when it says that whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In this verse, James 4, 4, James is telling us that if, if you're a friend of the world, that you are actively hostile towards God. If, if you, if you want to be a friend to the world, you are an enemy to God. And that there's no doubt that the world is enticing um, you know, there are things that are good in it. And, and of course, James, he's, he's talking about being a part of these systems, again, that are actually in opposition to God. And so what James is saying is that they are in contradiction to one another, that, that the world has become the enemy of God. And so therefore, it's a great obstacle in the Christian life. And, and again, if you think of, of the flesh, we heard last week, the flesh as the sin that, that dwells within us, the enemy within us, you might want to think of the world then as the corporate flesh. Okay, if, if the flesh is the sin within, the world is the corporate flesh. Um, you, know, you take a bunch of sinful people and you put them together, and that's what you end up with. What you end up with is something that is bigger than all of them that begins to take on a life of its own. The world is all the opposition that we face because we live in a universe that's under the curse of sin. The world is what happens when a bunch of sinful people get together, and now we don't just have individual sin, but we now have corporate and communal effects of sin. And, and this is a hard lesson to learn, that the world is our enemy. The, the world has things in it, and, and it's full of things that are meant to destroy us, that are meant to, to lead us away from God. And because of that, we must be on guard. We must be on guard. And so that leads us to point number two. 
As, as an enemy to us, it's important that we know the world's tactics. How, how does the world work? Now, there are a huge variety of things that the world does. Um, I'm only going to cover a few things here, but um, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 to 17. It's, it's up here, but maybe it would be worthwhile. If maybe I could ask somebody to read 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17 for us. Yeah, thank you. Um, really quickly, I just want to address one misconception that I think some might be wondering about. It says, do not love the world. And what some might be wondering is, how can we reconcile that with, okay, well, we know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Okay, but now here John later on is writing, do not love the world. So how can we reconcile that, that we're supposed to not love the world, but yet God says he loved the world? Again, there are different meanings to the world, to that word. Um, you know, sometimes the term world refers to the people that inhabit the earth, um, as we see in John 3.16, the people that God has created. Um, now, certainly, absolutely not. God is not saying that we should hate people, that we should not love people. Um, that's not what he's saying. We know that's not the heart of God. Um, we know that we're called to, to give even, uh, or to give love even to our enemies. Um, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself. So when John here says, do not love the world, he says that your love becomes sinful when it is directed at the system that is the world, the system that is anti-God, this anti-kingdom of God, um, the system that is satanic. Um, and, and John, as, as you look through uh, this epistle, First John, you see all throughout, um, it's very obvious that it's the satanic system that he's referring to because he uses it several times. And one, one very clear example is at the end of First John, chapter 5, verse 19, he tells us that we know this whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And it's obvious here that in 1 John 2.15 that he's referring to that world that is under the control, under the power of the enemy, of the devil. The world that is spiritually and ideologically opposed to God, opposed to our king, 
opposed to his kingdom. And we are told, do not love that world. And it goes on to say that all that is in the world, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, we heard that brought out this morning from Aaron. All of those things are not from the Father. They, they are from the world. And, and so what are those things? Well, the lusts of the flesh, those are the things that are, are pleasurable, right? Those are the things that the world offers, the, these um, things that they're offering to try and fulfill our desires, to give us that good feeling, um, that pleasurable feeling that we long for. The lusts of the flesh are the things that gratify that, that good feeling that we long for. It's, it's not that God doesn't want you to have fun or to be happy or um, to feel good. I mean, that's, that's a lie that the enemy will use to uh, pull us away. And, and of course... It's, it's working at our desires, our fleshly desires. Um, and that fills all sorts of addictions, whether it's sex, alcohol, drugs, anything that gives you that false feel-good feeling that is the lust of the flesh. And, and the lust of the eyes is then the, the temptation, that, that covetous peace that comes along. That's always wanting something more. It's this discontentedness. You're looking around and comparing to others and this feeling that someone always has more. Um, it's greed. And, you know, the Lord is characterized by the complete opposite, by gratitude, by contentedness. <coughs> You know, Paul says that he has learned to be content in all situations. Right? But the opposite of that is a grumbling spirit. The mindset that someone else has something better or they have it better off. That's the lust of the eyes, that that envy, that coveting part. And then the pride of life. Well, that's that's Self-focus, self-centeredness, self-selfishness, arrogance. It's this idea that I am better, I am more important, I am superior in whatever way. I am what matters in life. That, that kind of mentality. You know, all those things are not from the Father, they're from the world. And when we become consumed by those things, all, all the material reality around us, the, the feelings or the material things, the, this idea of becoming too self-important, all of those things are acting like the world. Now, in, in considering how the world works, um, the world works by very simply going after our loves, going after our affections, 
trying to steal them away. Um, and I, I want you to see the, the clear connection between the, the world and desire here. You know, in, in these verses here, notice, uh, notice how often it talks about love. Um, you got to understand this is how the world works. The world works on you by wooing you, by competing for your love, for your affection, for your, your desires. When, when you get your desires wrapped around the, the things of the world, when, when, you, when what you want begins to control you, it's, it's then that you feel this dullness. Um, you know, what happens to your desire for God in those times? It diminishes. It becomes dull. You know, if, if we're not hungry, if, if we're not desperate for God, it's because we're already too full. We're too full of the world. How else does the world work? Um, maybe, yeah, I'll get someone to read these passages for me. John 15, verse 18 to 20. One person can read that. John 15, verse 18 to 20. Thank you. The, the point is this hating and persecuting. This is another tactic of the world. You know, that, that despising, that mocking, that disdain, the, the vitriol. Um, that's a tactic the world uses against Christians. It's just venom towards Christians and, and Christianity. And, and that's one of the world's tactics. And... You know, persecution, that's, that's even more um, open. It's even more apparent. Um, you know, it's killing Christians. It's causing harm to Christians, hurting them. That physical aggressiveness towards Christians. It's those pieces of suffering. And we see that all throughout the world. Um, let's look at another example. Matthew 18, if someone can read those verses for me. Matthew 18, verses 1 to 7.
thank you. So another thing that the world does is that it causes Christians to stumble. And how does it do that? Well, it causes Christians to stumble by offering endless temptations to evil. Uh, Endless temptations to do what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do. It, It offers countless opportunities, countless moments in which the steel of your Christian character is going to be tested. Your character will be shown in those moments of temptation. And it's looking to make you stumble. It it wants you to fall. It's your enemy. It's opposed to you. Um, I'll give you one more tactic there. Uh, Romans 1, uh, verse 28 to 32, if someone can read that for me. Yeah, thank you. That's quite the laundry list of evil things that go on in the world. You know, this passage, I think it really uh, opens our eyes to um, see what's going on, especially in the world that we see around us today. Um, A lot of what we see can be explained by this principle that we see in this passage. Um, We see that... um, it says that people, they know what is good. Um, the ESV says that they know God's righteous decree. But not only do they do the evil things that were just listed there, but they give approval to those who do them. You know, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we see the world honoring the things that are, are shameful and then shaming the things that are honorable. And, you know, you go on to social media today and that's what it's full of, honoring the things that are shameful and shaming the things that are honorable. It's, it's a cesspool. And that those things that are evil are, are applauded. They are things that are celebrated. And that which, again, is good, those things that are honorable, are then hated and despised. You know, unfortunately, the reality of the world, as Roman 1 
Romans 1 explains um, is that the world honors what is shameful and they shame what is honorable. So those are just some tactics that uh, we see the world using. We talked about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They, they hate and persecute Christians. They uh, try to cause you to stumble. Uh, filled with temptations, they honor what is shameful and shame that which is honorable. And like I said, these are just some of the world's tactics. But let's go on to our last point here. How then do we fight the world? How do we fight the world? That um, you know, again, if the, if the world is this corporate flesh, and the the way that the world works is by attracting our desires, by, by competing for our love. The question is then, how do we fight the world? The answer is by finding our satisfaction in God. When, when we are satisfied in God, we begin to, to lose our appetite for the things of this world. When, when we really see and, and know the, the fullness of God, there's no room for anything else. And we are satisfied in him. You know, that appetite for the world just goes away. It diminishes. When, when you desire God, when you love God, when you're chasing after God, you can't possibly love the things of this world. And, and so my prayer for all of us this morning is that, that we would be a people who love God. Uh, we would be a people who love God. Um, and we would see what the world is in reality, that it is an enemy. Now, you know, I don't think what I'm saying is shocking. Um, I think this is something that we already know. But again, some some might be here thinking, okay, I, I know that's true. I, I need to... Love God more, but how? How? Well, um, you know, we all feel that inclining in our hearts towards the world. And so, again, we, we know that we should love God, but How? What does it take for the love that I have for the world to really become less and less, to be less significant to me and the reality of God to, and his love to really consume me? That's, that's the question we need to answer. And if, if the question, or sorry, if the answer is that we should love God and that a true love for God will diminish our appetite for the world, then the question is, what helps us love God? How, how do we increase our love for God, our appetite for God? And here's the key. Here's the reality. That our love for God is always a response. It's a reflex of our heart to his love for us. You know, the Bible says that we love because he first loved us. 
And, and so we arrive at a deeper love for God when we arrive at a deeper grasp of his love for us. Now, the more we see and, and know and experience his love for us, the, the, greater, the greater our love for him becomes. Now, in considering how we are to fight against the enemy of our, um, of our soul, the world, there are two ditches that we often fall into and that we need to avoid. And uh, these two ditches here are separatism and syncretism. Um, again, having a proper understanding of the love of God has um, the, the power to um, help us avoid these two ditches. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk about separatism right now. Separatism, that's one way that the world tries to fight, or people try to fight the world. Um, you know, many people think that, you know, to fight the world because it's so evil that we just need to separate from the world. That, uh, you know, we, we pull away from the world, we separate ourselves, we isolate, and, you know, it's basically trying to escape the world. Um, and it's, it's a classic impulse of, of, of many um, in an attempt to be pure, uh, in an attempt to be separate uh, from the world by disassociating yourself from the world. Um, you know, many of our brothers and sisters here grew up in a system like this that was very legalistic and separate from the world. Um, maybe you've heard this saying, don't drink smoke, cuss, or chew, or go with the girls that do. I, I want us to see separatism for what it really is. It's, it's a sleight of hand by the enemy. Because, you know what, I can love the things of the world and not participate in them. I can love alcohol and not drink. I can love drugs and, and not take them. Um, it's a misunderstanding of the grace of God. Um, I can love those things. I mean, my passions and my affections can be pointed towards those things. And yet my legalism says I'm better because I, I resist those urges. Um, I don't participate in those things. And, you know, that verse that we saw in 1 John 2, John isn't saying don't participate in the world. He says don't love the world. And we need the, the discernment to understand the difference there. Um, you know, we, even though may separate ourselves from it, still every fiber of our being can love it. And we are still stuck under the power of sin. Um, if, 
If we are separatists, what we say is because, you know, because we're God's people, because we've separated ourselves from the world, um, then we're more acceptable to God. We're, we're more likable to God. And that's false. Right? If, if, um, we, if we do that, what we're implying is that, you know, because we've separated ourselves far enough, only then, and because of that, God's grace could finally reach us. And that's not true. When God saves us, he plucks us out of, out of hell, a, bl- a brand from hell. He, his love, his grace meets you where you are in the world. He calls you out. Um, and so in reality, this idea of separatism is the exact opposite. It's, um, it's not the heart of God. Even when we were his enemies, that is when we see that he loved us. And so when we understand that, that keeps us from separatism. It, it keeps us from assuming that the real problem is just the people out there in the world. And, and if we could just get away, then we would be okay. Our, our children would be okay. Our, our church would be, would be fine. That's false. It's not true. And that's not how God's grace and, and love work. You know, by God's grace, by his love, we can be in the world without being a part of the world. Um, you know, the Bible assumes that we are going to be associating with the world, that we're going to be rubbing shoulders every day with the world. How can we have an impact on those around us if we are separating ourselves from them? Um, Understanding the love and grace of God keeps us from assuming that we can come out and create a pure society that's untainted by the world. Again, that is not how grace works in the first place. But then the question is, how, how do we do that? How, how do we stay engaged in the world and yet not be corrupted by it? How do we do that? You know, if it's, if it's true that we're supposed to associate with, with people who, who don't share our worldview, who don't um, value the things that we value, who don't uh, love and worship God like we do, how are we to do that without being corrupted in the world? Well, John 17, verse, I'll read this one. John 17, verse 15. John 17, again, this is the Lord Jesus' prayer. For his disciples, he says in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Notice that when Jesus says that they are not of the world, that's talking about identity. It's not about location, that they have been geographically removed from the world. It's their identity. God's grace not only saves us, but it sanctifies us. It's God's grace that separates us, sets us apart. We Notice it says that we are united with Jesus. That's where our identity is in. It's in him. And so, like him, we're not of this world. And therefore, we don't share the values of the world. We don't love the things that the world loves. We're set apart, we're distinct, and we're different. And if that's true, then our lives ought to be distinct and different. And what sets us apart is is truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God. You know, what it means to be a Christian is that you are a person who is called by God out of the world, united with Jesus by faith, and then sent back on a mission. Sent back into the world with the truth of God and the word of God that's defining your existence. Now, we're set apart. We are different. We are distinct. And our lives in the world ought to reflect that. Let's, let's talk about syncretism here really quickly. So syncretism, it's the opposite of separatism. Okay, where separatism, we want to get away from the world. Syncretism is we are in the world and we're comfortable. Syncretism um, is blending in. Like, think of like a chameleon that blends in with its environment. It's when, when people, um, you know, you, you go to work and, and no one knows that you're a Christian. No one knows because you're just like everyone else. You do, you say, every, you say the things that everyone else does. And no one would have a clue. There's no distinctiveness. That's syncretism. Um, just adapting to your environment, so to speak. Um, and you know what the danger of that is? The danger of syncretism is that it happens over time. You know, it's not something that one day you wake up and you say, I'm, I'm just going to blend in, start blending in a little bit. No, it's little decisions to compromise over time that lead us down this path. Small compromises. Now, listen to what, um, this is a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. If you ever read that before. Um, it's, he's writing from the perspective of a demon writing to another demon, trying to teach him how to, to cause his subject or his human being to stumble. And this is one quote he says, but if only he can be kept alive, you have time itself for your ally. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really, it is finding its place in him. It is finding its place in him. Real worldliness is a work of time. Realize that it's a marathon. It's not, not a sprint. It's, it's a fight that's going to last 
your entire life. The world will seek to press you into its mold as long as you are in it. And, and it will try to attract your desires to make you love the wrong things. And, and to win that battle, to, to be faithful over time, you have to understand your identity in Christ. He has set you apart. You are distinct and different, and that requires and demands that you live distinctly and differently in the world. It's possible to be in the world, but not of the world. But only if you understand his grace, only if you understand his love. And if, if not, you're going to find yourself in one of those two ditches. A separatist who isolates himself, or a syncretist who aligns himself completely with the world, because... It's comfortable. You don't care about the holiness of God. So, how do we fight the world? By loving God more. What stirs up our love for God? How, how do we become a people that are more in love with him? By remembering that you are ultimately saved by grace and not by work. May we be a people who are desperately in love with God. Who, who love God more and more each day and therefore love the world less and less each day. Um, yeah, let's, let's close in prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, um, yeah, just... Asking, Lord, that you would take these truths and um, help, us, help it to stick, Lord. Um, help it to be applicable to our lives. Um, yeah, we don't want to live lives that are conformed to the ways of this world. We want to be transformed. We want our minds renewed. Um, yeah, God, we, we need your help. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. Um, we thank you that we are people called by you and you've given us a mission. You've given us um, a work to do and yeah, help us to live for you. May our love for you grow more and more. May we love you more today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today. In Jesus' name, amen.